0: Stay hungry, stay foolish.
1: We have got such an amazing episode for you today, Restoring the Soul of Business with Rishad Tabakawala. And before I start into that magnificent episode, I want to thank our sponsor, Zai. Zai is boldly transforming the future of financial services with a suite of embedded finance products, empowering businesses to manage multiple payment workflows and move funds with ease. You can check out Zai at hellozai.com want to remind you that it is such a pleasure to bring you this content every single week. I hope that you leave with more clarity and more inspiration than ever before. Every time you experience one of the shows. Today's episode is an absolute cracker, an absolute pleasure to talk to this gentleman. Here comes the intro. Time is all we have. So why should you allocate any time today's episode and indeed to our guest book? because he hopes it will leave you seeing thinking and feeling differently about how to grow and remain relevant in these transformative times, how to grow yourself, those around you grow your practice, your passion or your company, how to remain relevant by understanding what it takes to sense and thrive in a world of rapid technological demographic and global upheaval. This book recognises that while our world is increasingly filled with digital silicon based computing objects, it is populated by people who remain analog, carbon based feeling creatures, people like you, and people like me, and people like the author of restoring the soul of business staying human in the age of data, Rishad Tabakawala. Welcome to the show.
0: Thank you very much. Thank you for having me and for that great introduction. Hopefully, yeah. we will live up to it.
1: I thoroughly thoroughly enjoyed the book. And we're under limited time pressure. As you talk about you manage your time very, very well. And I'm going to do that the same today. I'll try and get as much value into the hour we have together as possible, Rishad to share with our audience. And it's such a timely book. So prophetic in many, many ways of when it came out. So let's give some context first, because you've had a remarkable career, you've had an unusual career in that you've stayed in the same company for four decades, but you are an exemplar of reinvention, you've reinvented yourself time and time again. And I thought we'd give context for a how you've done that, but b) what this book is about before we dive into some particular details.
0: Absolutely. So at its very heart, the book is about how do you combine two parts of our lives, which is the part that is data-driven mathematical or what I call the spreadsheet. And the part that is about culture and storytelling and imagination and emotion, which I call the story. So my underlying basic belief is that successful individuals and companies combine the story and the spreadsheet. That often in today's world, because it's a world where you can measure things with data, because data is a common language and data in its way is not messy like people are. People tend to basically skew more towards data than they should. And my belief is too much data and you end up with companies like Wells Fargo that opens up fake accounts. But on the other hand, if you have just story and too much story, you end up with WeWork where you have a hallucination of a company without any underlying economics. But if you look at successful companies and individuals, they combine the two. Sometimes it's 75% data, 25% story, sometimes it's the other way around. But I remind people companies like Disney call themselves the magic kingdom, they don't call themselves the algorithmic kingdom. And the two most valuable companies, the most valuable company in the world, Apple, and the most valuable company headquartered in Europe, which is LBMH, which is Louis Vuitton, Moit Hennessy, build themselves not basically, and have become this value, not just basically on the fact that they have very good financials, very good logistics, and very good strategy, but their products and services are about storytelling, provenance and culture, and design. And so I look around me and people say everything is about data. And I say, if that was true, you wouldn't be born because the ROI of parenthood is not so
1: good. Wonderful way to kick us off, Richard. And I thought I'd go a little bit deeper into the challenge before we start to look at some solutions. And I love the way you open the book because you open with this challenge that you call carbon based analog feeling humans in a silicon infused digital data driven world. And you start by saying the same data driven technologies giving rise to such wealth and opportunity were increasingly being leveraged in harmful ways, leading to the breakdown of trust, increased polarization, and rising inequality our wealth and success and the sweet siren call of optimizing numbers has led us to overlook the collateral damage of forgetting or neglecting to consider the human side of the equation. And you touched on it there, but I'd love to deep, dig deeper into this because we've all felt this, particularly during the pandemic. We've seen that many leaders can talk a good game when things are going well. And as the saying goes, any turkey can fly in a storm you can do you can do that when things are going well, but when it came to the crunch, many people saw the truth behind their leaders, and they showed their true colours when the going got tough. And this is one of the reasons we're seeing this great resignation. I'd love your thoughts on that.
0: You're absolutely correct. So w- I had sensed and you know, one of the reasons the book which did very well when it came out and continues to sell extraordinarily well. And as I mentioned, it's being like reprinted was because it was both prescient, And it turned out to be interrogated and proven to be correct post COVID. So in the book, I was thinking about what would happen when people had to work primarily from home. And this wasn't because of COVID, but because this was because of technology, knowing where technology was going. When you think about where we were in, you know, January or February of 2020, we still worked like it was 1980. The offices still operated like it was 40 years ago, which made no sense. But inherently, I also began to recognize that the underlying siren call, as you say, of data had led management to actually manage by numbers versus manage by philosophy, manage by by people. And that came to crunch at COVID where the same company that talked about how important people were immediately dropped as many people as they possibly could. And what happened was You know, the word that I use, which is not in the book because I came up with this after COVID versus before COVID was we were going to enter what I call the great reinvention. And this is what goes on. We went through a period of at least a year, and for some people it keeps going on, uh, but at least a year of what I call fragility, right? We all suddenly felt fragile. And we felt fragile because we were uncertain about the future. We were anxious about our health, right? Um, And we were fearful. And when that happens, here's what happens. You start rethinking every aspect of your life, which means you also rethink your work. And when you begin to say, look, I've given a lot to work, and I'm beginning to realize life is short, And I also begin to realize that most of my bosses, regardless of what they said, didn't actually care. So now when you have to come back, you say, no, thank you, right? Because first of all, I no longer believe that I am going to fit in the story of your company. Your company is gonna have to fit in the story of my life. And this is why most management isn't getting it because they themselves, when they try to get people back to the office, are making two massive mistakes. Number one is they're believing that people don't remember what happened the last two years that they haven't changed. And I believe that all of our minds are like champagne corks. Once they come out, they don't fit again. Right? So they're trying to fit people back. And I said, Look, the animals are out of the zoo, you aren't going to get them back in there. Right? And that's that's number one. And then number two, which is as important which a lot of people don't recognize, is all the reasons why people said they want to go back to the office or companies want you to go back to the office. They talk about networking, learning, brainstorming. None of those actually occurred at the office when we went to the office. We would go to bars to network and restaurants. We would go to offsites. We would go to events. We would go to conferences. So that is the biggest issue, which is in effect, the same management that today tries to reinvent the past is actually showing their dinosaur-like mindset, right? And and then they're getting basically surprised at at the fundamental belief really that people are asking to their leaders is do you really know how to lead or do you know only how to boss, which is number one. And number two is what exactly do you do besides boss around people?
1: I'm going to jump right to the end of the book because you reminded me there. <laughs> Firstly, we've all experienced that where people talk a great game until it comes to the crunch. And one of the great things about the great reinvention has been that people have had time to re- reflect. We've done shows on this reshad where people have reconnected with nature, they've reconnected with family, they've re- examined purpose in the first place instead of being drowned by busyness. So that's the positive. But as you say, people have realised they're kind of going, Hey, my boss is an absolute jackass. What the heck have we been working in that place for so long? I'm going to go and do this myself. And they may have built some new capabilities during the pandemic, which is absolutely fantastic for everybody. And I'm just going to plant the seed here because one of the questions for many people is like going well, how did Reshad stay in one company for 40 years, because it's so unusual today. And that's what I find so remarkable. We'll come back to that. But I'm going to jump to the end where you talk about. And I love your metaphors throughout the book, math and meaning spreadsheet and story. But you give four archetypes of managers or bosses that everybody has. And I'd love you to share some of these even because I love these labels, you give them
0: all of us basically have either had this or we've had bosses like this. And I remind people that whoever you are, on a particular day, you sometimes have some of these bad habits. So it's not like outside of one, which I don't think I have, but the others at some stressful time, I've had one or more of these, okay. But these are the archetypes of bosses. One is what I basically call the narcissist. So the narcissist is somebody who basically believes that only they can solve the problem. The meeting doesn't exist without them, right? So there's the narcissist. Then there is what I call the micromanaging fiddler. And the micromanaging fiddler, you know, basically constantly um, little, you know, comes in and redoes every single thing that you have ever thought about doing. And that is, again, like weird. A third one, and this one is, uh, you know, one that is often common, is what I call the Oscar contender. Someone who's very dramatic, you know, sighs, doesn't speak, slams doors. Uh, they think they're trying out for like an Oscar, right? But my thing to these people is, hey, you're at work. I don't understand all this sighing and keeping quiet and naked faces, and yelling and screaming, you're not in a goddamn movie. And then the last one, and the one that I've, you know, I've probably, in my share of my career, I've probably done all of those three at particular times, but hopefully not more than one or two days a year. You know, sometimes under stress, you become a micromanaging fiddler, right? Sometimes you lose and You think you're so cool that you become a narcissist. And there are times when you just, for drama, become an Oscar contender. The one I think I haven't done, and the one that we often deal with a lot is what I call the double-crossing assassin, okay? And the double-crossing assassin is someone who basically tells you one thing and tells somebody else something else, and then says they will support you, but in a a big meeting or behind your back, they stab you at the back, which is what I call the double-crossing assassin. And my basic belief is you can recover usually from the first three. A relationship recovers. If, you know, once in a while you're micromanaging, people don't say, okay, stop micromanaging. You know, sometimes you throw a shit fit. People say, why did you throw a shit fit? Right? You know, sometimes you basically end up, you know, to a great extent, believing you're God's gift to this earth and people remind you you're not. You can recover from those. When you can't recover is when you double cross someone because they'll never trust you. Right? And a big part of leadership is trust. And the first three, which are bad behaviours don't impact trust. The last
1: one does, I was nodding away as you were saying this, because it reminded me of so many people I've worked with in the past, I I'd, I'd one fiddler of a boss. And I used to actually leave something broken in a report or something on purpose, knowing that the fiddler would kind of go to it and kind of go because they had to have some type of involvement in it and some type of way to go i'm better than you i'll bless this work and i'm sure you see a hell of a lot of that in the creative industry as well because you deal with egos on on a regular basis as well but there's a reason i'm saying that because and i'm i'm going to jump everywhere in the book here and i'm going to be dictated by our conversation rather than the flow of the book Because one of the most important things you talk about, and this is about building trust as well, you talked about Wells Fargo, you even talked about Sears and overly dependent being overly dependent on remote contact to your employees before even COVID hit. And the biggest thing that we need to do, and we've done shows on this, we've had the magnificent Amy Edmondson on the show before talking about psychological safety, Jim D talking about the courage to call it. You beautifully call it calling out the turd on the table. And, and I say that not just for comedic effect, because it's, it's not funny, because so many organizations go under, they have terrible, drastic, toxic issues like Enron, or WeWork or as you said, Wells Fargo, the, the list goes on. But even so, knowing that the iceberg of an organization is melting, that the business model is going under, And people are fearful about calling out the turd on the table. And as you say as well, sometimes they think the turd is a brownie or they want to think it because of magical thinking.
0: Yes. So, what is basically happening is what I understood is over my 40 year career, I began to realize that the best leaders and the best companies tended to beat themselves right? They were not beaten. They decided to commit suicide. That's what they decided to do. And I basically began to ask, like, what made them commit suicide or harm themselves? Sometimes they didn't die as companies, but they declined significantly. And I eventually understood that there were two reasons. The first reason and the second reason were connected and reason number one is because they became incestuous. And by incestuous basically means they started talking to themselves and they looked internally. The second is because they began to have a culture that was fear-filled. So they, you know, it's, it's sort of, if any country that has the word democratic in its name is not democratic. Okay. So whenever you says the great democratic republic or something, it's not a Democrat. Comes, right? So similarly, when people say, you know, we are a fear-free culture and they keep saying it and I say, okay, that probably means it's a fear-filled culture. Why do you have to keep talking about it? And, and what was common was the fear and the incestuousness was led by leadership, right? That the leaders of the company began to sit around with each other, look inside, and basically say any outside thinking or outside perspective was considered to be not philosophically aligned with the dear leader or leaders. And you began to see it in both the WeWork and other, you know, like WeWork was a big fat hallucination, right? Uh, And it so trapped people that even people who are very smart, like Mary Shishan of SoftBank, got taken into this. Because this is a group of people who start to believe that their flatulence smells like Chanel 5, okay? And and nobody tells them, hey, listen, it's a goddamn messy, smelly fart. It ain't perfume from Paris. So that's number one. But the other is because of the incestuousness, they also began to not see that the greatest opportunities and threats to any company, and I would say to almost any individual, comes from outside where they're looking. It tends to come from two places, below them and not above them, and outside and not inside the category. So what do I mean by below and not above? IBM did not see Microsoft because Microsoft had this crazy dirty thing called MS-DOS. And IBM basically thought it was about hardware versus software. Microsoft did not really grab and embrace the web and did not understand the power of search, which allowed Google to come to be, right? So this is like the line I say, the future does not come from the heavens. We keep looking up and it comes from the bottom. The other is it comes from outside and not inside. And if you think about General Motors and Toyota and Ford, for years, they kept looking at each other and benchmarking against each other, going to the same auto shows in Frankfurt and Detroit and partnering with the same supply chains and thinking they were so cool. And what came to disrupt their business were Uber and Tesla from outside what they were looking at. And you see this again and again, you know, Nokia and Sony disrupted by the stupid computer company that introduced a phone without a keyboard. What's that all about, right? And that is why I think I always ask people, can you tell me who in your organization is your chief turd slayer? Can you tell me who in your organization comes in and basically tells management that you're full of shit? If you've got nobody in your the organization, then, pay, then you possibly are full of shit. But if you've got people constantly coming around saying this is shit, that is shit, Sometimes they're wrong, often they're wrong. But when you find it, you flush the thing out of the system.
1: It's so important that that role, and we talk about this regularly on the show, Rishad, that those people are gainsayers when their intention is correct. And you experienced this yourself with a colleague who told you back in 1983, by the way, so just to show because it was borderline racist, what he what he said to you, but you looked at the intention behind it, and went, Wait a second, wh- what's the what's the source of this intention, which is really important.
0: And I use that today in a different way. So the story was very simple. I I was doing very well, I had great reviews, but my boss's boss took me into a meeting and said, you won't succeed in the long run. And that's because you don't understand American culture, your Indian heritage has limited your ability to understand American culture. And, you know, I could have taken it as okay, the guy doesn't like short brown Indians. But what he was basically saying is you've got massive potential but you have a weakness, you're working in America. You talk about stupid cricket, we play baseball, you've never been to college here, so you don't understand homecoming games. You don't understand a lot of American culture, and when you're with clients, you don't talk about anything but work, and that's pretty boring. That's not the way you build relationships. But your weakness is not a problem of anything but where you grew up. It's not like you did anything wrong. Like he you know, you said, look, I don't know cricket, and if i had worked in india i wouldn't know not, not how to talk in hindi or everything else so but i'm not working in india you're working in the united states so you have to adapt to us we won't adapt to you right and as a result i'm going to help you and i'm going to take i'm going to have my kids take you to homecoming games i'm basically giving you tickets to sporting events i'm going to take you to different places and in the next 6 months to a year any gaps you've got we'll fill them in and your gaps are to do with where you came from Okay. And because of that, you know, 30, 40 years later, I was one of the five most senior people inside publicist. Uh, And that was good, but I could have basically yelled and screamed or not taken it and it would have been cool, but I don't think I would have proceeded as I did. But as importantly, I've turned that around today to, would someone give me that advice today? And that's the one I worry about. And the reason that story is still so valid is a lot of people, both of color and women, have come to me on reading that story and says, you know, it's so good that somebody told you that. Because it was very clear that their intention was not racist. The intention was not to make you feel short or whatever it was, right? Their intention was, you are capable of great things. I'm pointing, you, pointing things out that may stop you and I'm gonna help you fix them. So it was three key things. You're terrific, but in order to arrive at where you need to do, this is a vulnerability, recognize it and let me help you fix it, right? And those three steps are amazing. Good intention, clarity, and then showing you how to solve the problem and they're getting involved in solving the problem. They said, nobody does that anymore or very few people do that. And the reason is people are scared of telling you anything that you may find that you don't understand and agree and you don't question. So you immediately take it at surface value versus what's the intention. So I remind people that we're living today in a world where we've got diversity of faces, but we don't have as much diversity of voices.
1: It's such a valuable point, point. and I I'm, thank you for contextualizing it further for today's business world. Because that calling out—I mean, one of the greatest gifts I mentioned to you before—you mentioned sport. There is that I had a sporting career, and you get feedback whether you want it or not from the public or from your coach every single week. So you learn that feedback's a positive thing if you take it on board.
0: Exactly, exactly, exactly.
1: And I, I see it today, Rishad, even with my children, like maybe some other parents might think I'm a bit harsh with my children, when I give them feedback, I tell them when something isn't up to scratch, and they're only 12 and eight, by the way, but I mean, I know if they haven't made an effort, and I never actually credit the outcome, it's the input, it's how much work they put in, how much effort they made, that's what you credit, because that's repeatable in the future. But I I wanted to take that and go, now apply that to organisations and calling things out. What's called a gainsayer is, is what that gentleman did for you, not a naysayer. So he's not going around calling turds out all over the place. It's actually going. These are specific. Now I wanted to bring it to life a little bit more because again, you've had a magnificent career, you've started companies within publicists, you've been responsible at the moment, digital, you started the whole digital revolution. It's half the company's revenue, if not more today, and you started that along with a lady called Jane Zenity. And I thought that that was so interesting for multiple reasons. For the audience of our show, Rishad, including me, many of us have known the future, tried to articulate it, and been like Cassandra's, the Greek tragedy of Cassandra. It's just been like gobbledygook to people, or else they don't want to hear it, or else, like you said there, you're considered a naysayer, or else they try and apply math. To what your meaning is, and they, you cannot marry those two things in a very articulate way when you're talking about the future. You did it, <laughs> and many people will be wondering how did you do this? And the secret, I presume, is in some way in meaning and story over spreadsheet and math.
0: Yes. So the the, the way the, the way I did it, and, and the way I suggest to people, everybody has a different way of doing it, but there are some ingredients. So every that you should look at. So if you want to cook up this thing there are some ingredients, how you decide to combine these ingredients is based on your personality, the situation, but there are four or five ingredients that I would ask people, and you need to use at least two or three of these. And you can decide how much of them you use. But the first one is this, which is whatever you do, you got to basically, whatever you're selling has to benefit the person you're trying to convince, versus only benefit you or the company. Okay, what I try to remind people is there is nothing like the company, there are just people. And when you basically come up with something that benefits the supposed company, which does not exist because it's only people, and it benefits you, but it doesn't necessarily benefit the person who you want to get approval from, it's not going to happen. Okay, so what you have to basically say is this is why this change is good for you. This is how this will make you your division, whatever better. If I succeed, right, not only will the company succeed, but you will succeed. What often people do is they say, you suck. I have the new way forward. Give me the money to show you the new way forward so you've already done three things one is you've told me i suck which i don't want to be told second is i know the way forward which puts me backward give me the money i'll control it right what i basically say is i think this is extremely important for the company the company is you and me and the dog named boo right can you help me get to the future here are how we can do things you have the funds, we will figure out how to work it. And I'll work with you. But so what I basically would do is I would give final control to the person who I was trying to get approval from. And it wasn't like a trick. It was like, I can't do this without you. Because if I can get you on board, we can navigate this properly. And so that was the first thing, which is it has to benefit the approver as much as it benefits the company and you because there is nothing like a company. That's number one. The number two, is you have to be willing to take a significant risk yourself, right. And in my case, the risk was I was running a 100 people, I was not running hundred. I was, I was running a group of 100 people. And to do these new things, I work by myself. So on paper, I didn't lose salary, but I lost control and status and everything, right? But it didn't matter. So their stuff is this guy is serious. I mean, he's serious enough to do this. It's not like some sort of lock. So we should let him do this because it makes make, make sense. So their old stuff is he's he's giving up a lot to try to do this upside. So we should provide that. So the first is obviously what, how does your manager benefit? But the second is to show that you're willing to gamble with your stuff, right? You're not just gambling the whole company, you're gambling you. So that that people say, okay, they got skin in the game. They're very interesting. The third and this is extremely important is as you start off on your journey, you won't get it right. I never got it right. Initially, I got the where I was trying to go, but I didn't get the right direction or the right vehicle. So I had to come back and basically say, I think we got to do it a little bit differently. Now, that was a little bit easy for two reasons. I already had brought, got my management on board, and I got their hands in the thing, and I said, oh, shit, we can't fail failure. I just discovered something, and we have to do it differently. But I'm already in the game, so my stuff is here's what we want to do. So like when I first launched one of these things, I was trying to launch it inside the company and I began to realize that I needed to launch it outside the company with a different talent set and a different cost structure. So I had to then convince them to do that. So that's the third ingredient. The fourth ingredient, which is extremely important, is you might be very good at the vision but you might not be very good at the delivery. And therefore what you want to do is you want to surround yourself with talent who can do the delivery. And sometimes the once they deliver really well, you get yourself out of the way. So what happened is I've started lots of things, grown them to a particular point, and then recognized that the people who were actually doing the stuff were much better at running it than myself. And so I would leave, right? But because I left elegantly, there were two things that happened: is I had great relationships with that company, with the people I was the divisions I was building or helped build. But my company basically said, or you know, what I had supposedly left to start these new things. So though they're all owned by the same people, right? Hey, we've got some other challenges for you to do. And then you begin to have this interesting thing where people say. Okay, ingredient number one, he has brought me along. Ingredient number two, he's taking risks. Ingredient number three, he looks at what the reality is. And if there's some a mistake, he comes quickly, including his mistake and says, here's what we got to do. But four, he attracts and builds amazing talent teams. So we should go work for him, right? And that becomes important because early on, what you're trying to sell and that's the fifth component, is you're trying to sell a story. What we are too busy doing is talking about the block of marble we're working on, and I would basically sell the cathedral that we were building, right? So I'd say this is the cathedral. Yeah, it looks like we're building this block of marble, which looks pretty stupid, but this is where we're going. And so what tended to happen is people would buy into the Mission. And once I built the first of these cathedrals, I didn't, a lot of people built the first of them. They said, hey, this guy actually knows what he's talking about. And that's the track record, right? But if you don't have a track record, those other five can help you, you know, initially. And you combine them in different ways. Sometimes you have to do a lot of storytelling, other cases, you got to bring management along. But you do those, and nobody, what you're trying to do early on is make sure that people believe in you. Like this morning, uh, you know, before this call, I got up at, uh, I mean, I'm in Chicago. So my first call was at 5 30 AM. Okay. Because I was speaking to some senior people in Australia and they had a great idea and they were trying to figure out like how to make it happen. And my old stuff is everybody who you see as the resistance, don't consider them to be a resistance consider them to be co-conspirators, right? So go to them and don't say, here is my idea, right? Why are you gonna stop it? Just say, I have an idea, but I think you can improve it. And can you tell me how to make this happen? Because without you, I don't know how to make it happen. On the other hand, this may not be the best idea. You can help me improve it. So the basic belief is we always consider that everybody is resistance to change. I don't think people are resistant to change. They're resistant to doing things that don't help them.
1: beautiful, man. it's it's so, so useful. and the frameworks are great throughout the book. I wanted to introduce another framework, and we've touched on this one as well already because you talk about how do we counterbalance the math and the meaning, the machine and the human, the spreadsheet and the story. And you introduce here at a high level, seven keys to staying human. And in this section of the book, you suggest, Actions every organization and individuals can take to restore balance in this age of flux that we're going through. And I'd love to share them at a high level. We've already addressed one, which is addressing the turd on the table. But the second of these is a turd on the table. It's calling out that the reality that change sucks. And maybe we'll start from there. So, point two, over to you, is that change sucks.
0: So, you know, when people, asked me what I think about change. I basically say, change sucks. And they said, like, what are you talking about? So I said, hey, look, I worked for two people for 25 years. I worked in the same company for 40. I've lived in the same city for 42, and I met my wife 50 years ago. You're looking at someone who doesn't like change, okay? And they said, but wait, you drove so much change across the organization. I said, yes, change sucks, but irrelevance is even worse okay so this oh, okay that's interesting but I said but change does suck and I said I don't like to change because when I have to change I have to do new things and I look like a fool I make mistakes and the more senior I get the more I don't want to look like a fool and make mistakes and look stupid because people will say how did the elderly did he get this job in the first place <laughs> right but I said if I don't do these changing things. If I don't make mistakes, I'll then start faking it. And then suddenly I'll basically do buzzword bingo and not know what I'm talking about. But the underlying framework of change basically uh, is don't tell people change is good because you know when someone tells me a bottle of wine is good, they say, let's share it. But when they say change is good, they ask me to do it. And I say, I'm happy. You go do it if you want to do it, right? But change is not easy. So what I suggest to people is, look, we talk about change, and we talk about three things about change. We have a strategy for change. We sometimes do MA or bring in new skills, and we do reorganization. And all those three things are important. But often change doesn't happen because we forget four, five, six. So the fourth one is, if I'm going to have to change as a human being, tell me why it's good for me. Right. So just like, remember, when I mentioned I'm trying to drive something new, I say, this is why it's good for you. Number five is, can you tell me what my incentives will be to change? So people often tell you to change, but they pay you to do the same old thing. So you do the same old thing. And six, which we don't spend enough time on. And, you know, in my second career, a big part of what I now do is my business is besides writing and advising people, is I run a bunch of workshops because I began to realize that the sixth issue is, how do I do this? Where's my training, right? And over years, most companies have stopped investing in training. So just imagine someone basically says, Rashad, it's time for you to stop basically doing this, but do that. It's good for the company. Here's my strategy. Here's my reorg plan, and here's my acquisition plan. But I haven't yet explained to you, Rashad, why this is good for you. I've not explained how you'll be paid differently to do these new things, and I'm not going to provide you any training on how to do the new things. Go forth and prosper.
1: That one is so frustrating. I was telling you, I worked in media as well, and as you know, so much of the work is is project management you're you're delivering on projects, etc. And I was asking the company for many years for funding, which wasn't much It was like 1500 euro to take a course in Prince Two and project management. So I could manage app development, website development, whatever it was. And they kept saying, Oh, next year, next year, next year. And then one year, I was just like, on well, next year, I won't be here. I'm out of here, because they were so happy to for to put up with the inefficiencies that were invisible to them, which was, you know, delayed projects, etc, man and woman hours wasted on these projects that could be more efficient. And the reason I say that is, it reminds me of what you say in the book about how we run meetings, for example, and how we our diaries, our calendars are like Tetris, they're just slammed back to back all the time, we've no time to think, etc. But ironically, for many people, I said it in the introduction, you suggest more meetings, but with the caveat, more meaningful meetings, and you suggest ways we can both categorise those meetings, and name them. And I thought that was so useful, because I might go, what type of meeting is this going to be Richard, you tell me, and I know what I'm in store for, I'd love you to share this.
0: Yeah, so you know, what what, what tends to basically happen is one of the things that most people uh, do not sort of understand is a in Many times we go into to meetings and we're not really having a meeting, we're having a stereothon. So we're basically looking at a screen, either a big screen or a screen in front of us or a screen that we're balancing like in our on a, like our desktop kind of thing and, and or on our on our sheet and, and uh, on, our, on our knees and, and my whole thing is like that is you know not basically sort of a meeting under any under any circumstance. And, and what, what happens is I strongly suggest that you think about both the different types of meeting, which is, you know, one, one thing that's important, but also what you want to leave people with at the end of the meeting. I always constantly say, okay, what are we going to do, you know, at the, at the end of a meeting? Like what do I want people to sort of need? So the, the, the meetings that that I've suggested is – there are meetings where there are meetings where you don't know who the person is, what I call as unknown meetings, where someone basically says, I want to talk to you. Right. And I would when I was now, of course, like I'm an unemployed starving author, so nobody wants to talk to me. But when I wanted when when I was like very senior, people wanted to talk to me. <laughs> and 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 my assistant would say, Hey, here's this person. And I said, I don't know who the person is. But I said as long as the person isn't like some assassin, I'll have a meeting, right? Uh, let's do. Let's set up a fifteen or thirty-minute call. Uh, and if I I knew no nothing, I'd say let's just do a fifteen-minute call before we do a meeting. It's sort of a quickly, right? I eventually found some of my best talents, some of my best ideas from people like that. Now, of course, often you kiss frogs, and it was like, who the hell is this person? Okay, but but what happens is that was a way I got information outside my bubble through the the unknown meeting. So that was the way I wasn't incestuous, right? Because people would, would sort of come in from different places. Another one is the can you help meeting, which is basically how you can help somebody. And sometimes you have to go to someone and say, can I help you? Right? A third meeting, which is the one I didn't like doing, and I didn't like definitely being on the receiving end of it, but sometimes I was on both the receiving end and once in a while I had to be on the giving end of it, is what I call, you know, the woodshed meetings where you have to tell somebody that they suck or they've done something that's not happy, you know, that's not, not good. Then there are meetings where you want to basically go in and tell somebody, it's the equivalent of the turn on the table, it's like a Jerry Maguire meeting, where you want to basically set the whole place on fire.
1: I love that one, man. <laughs> Who's with me? Who's with me? I'm taking the fish, Richard.
0: And then there's that you know, so to, for me, the best meetings were the unknown meetings. And then the last one, which I'm about to talk about, so the unknown meetings were the best, you know, the can you help meetings, the woodshed meetings, all that is fine. And then the other one was, let's just get a beer meeting. Right. And, and that is basically have a meeting that there's no reason to have a meeting. So meeting doesn't have to be like in a meeting, you know, so hey, let's go get a beer. Now, how many times when you've gone with a colleague, a boss, an associate, a client, let's just go have a beer, you actually got more stuff done and you built relationships than let us have a meeting filled with an agenda in a room with screens and slides and stuff like that. So I basically talked about that. And then in the meetings thing that I also leave people with is you want to, I always did this and I do this today where I And I usually succeed almost all the time. Uh, And once in a while, I don't. And then I try to figure out why. But I try to basically say any interaction I have, I want at the end of it. uh, So I want to make sure that I appear generous and empathetic and all of that. But at the end of it, it isn't about how I appear and what I do. It's like, what does the person take away? Right. And so I want people at the end of a meeting with me to basically be able to take away three things. Number one is I want them to basically have new clarity about something. So this is as you began. I'd like people to see, think, and feel differently. But see, think, and feel differently, not just, okay, I, felt, I saw, felt, and thought differently. But you, know, you could slap me on the face and I could see, think, and feel differently, but that isn't helpful. So it's see, think, and feel differently about how to grow yourself, your team, or your business. So that, hey, I I saw, felt, and thought something differently about how I can grow myself or my team or my business. That's beneficial. That seeing, thinking and feeling is different than being slapped on the face. Okay, that's nice. Okay, that's number one. And I want clarity on that, which is I took one thing, one idea out of this meeting that can help me. That's one. Second is a sense of belief, which is, you know what, I think I can do this one new thing that I'm supposed to, I, I learned something, but I also believe I know how to do it, how I can do it. And third is to come out of the meeting with a higher level of energy than when you went into the meeting. So the whole idea is, I left a meeting with clarity, I left a meeting with belief in myself, and I left a meeting with energy. Now what happens is when you come out of a meeting like that right you feel really cool but guess what you think i'm really cool right because imagine someone comes to a meeting and they have i learned something i feel better about myself and i feel more energized you can't then say okay that guy sucked okay uh and and so that's so my thing is always on outcomes so the way I do it is through this combination of generosity and empathy and all of that kind of stuff and, you know, knowledge sharing and stuff. But that's all fine. I'm constantly reminding myself because there are too many times when you go in and, you know, management will come into a room and collapse the mood of the room. And this is actually a Thomas Finchin line. Like, you know, she came into the room and collapsed the mood. I I've always remember that as a line. And there's so many times when people come in and you feel – You know, how many times have you gone into a meeting and come out the exact opposite of what I've just suggested? You've gone in and you've come out unclear. How many meetings where you had no clue what exactly you're supposed to do next? Or people have yelled at you so much that you think you want to kill yourself. So there's no belief. And you you went into the meeting somewhat questioning things and you came out basically like limpid, like broken, right? I mean, just like, what's that? Yeah, and so many of the meetings we go to are like that these group hugs of screens and numbers and everyone playing games and the real meeting taking place in the toilet outside. What the hell?
1: Yeah, and so funny, I, I have my own sayings are like, do you want to be a drain or a radiator radiate people with energy or drain their energy?
0: Exactly. That's
1: a great, that's a great analogy. Or or do you want to do you light up a room when you come into it or when you leave it? (laughs) So many people do that, Richard, we're we're running out of time. And I have so many notes that I'm not going to get to. So I'm going to jump to the very end because you leave with a somewhat prophetic view of the working world. And it was so interesting that obviously, this had been brewing and marinating in your mind for decades, you'd seen through the scar tissue of experience, remote meetings, etc. You mentioned, for example, the former chairman of Sears running all these remote meetings, not actually getting out of the building, meeting customers, understanding what was happening on the floors of the Sears stores before the company ultimately failed. But I'd love to, to share how we generate soul for the machine age, because the first thing you prophetically address is the future of the workplace. And you emphasise the importance of community saying, in today's distributed workplace, where we interact across screens with machines that spew data that is collated and compiled by computers, how do we maintain maintain a sense of community? If people don't gather regularly around the water cooler, or in the coffee room, If they don't eat lunch together if they don't gather after meetings to dissect and discuss what took place if they are 50 percent less physically present in the office than then 10 years ago bear in mind this is before the pandemic then how can we create work communities i thought that was such a massive question but one that you addressed and has become even more important today
0: so you know one of the 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 the, the, there's the chapter that i so people basically said, okay, so you wrote this book after COVID. And I said, no, my book came out. Well, the last time I touched my book was in September. And so COVID, the earliest one could figure out that something was happening with COVID was November of 2019, if you were happy to be in Wuhan, uh, right?
1: So, <laughs> Where were and, you? Where but, were you around that time? Right.
0: <laughs> right. And, and, I've been, and by the way, I haven't been to Wuhan recently, but I've been to Wuhan three times because it's like the Chicago of... Of China, in both where it is and and, and things like that. But um, so I basically have a chapter, which is chapter two, called "Managing the Dark Side of Bright Screens." Okay, which was which was th- which was this particular sort of th- this chapter. And and one of the things I basically have talked about is what are some of the ways that you can use both in person as well as technology uh, to do that. And so my belief is, look. Personal interaction is an important part of building community, but not everyone can build personal interaction and, in fact, we've built organizations all over the world where most employees of Accenture and IBM now are in India. So when people say everyone's got to be at IBM headquarters, I said most of your employees are not in your headquarters anyway, so what are you talking about? Part of it is a lot of what I mentioned in the book, like how to have meetings. These can be done, by the way, across screens as well as it can be done. You know, uh, I have done these for years. You can do this across screens. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to combine the best of the virtual world and the best of the physical world. And both of those make the real world. Right. How do you combine the two? And. What you're looking at is not necessarily the office, but you're looking at in-person interactions. And the reality of it is, if you have very valuable in-personal interactions, even for 10 to 20% of all the time, it can be better than working 100% in an office with headphones on your head. And there are companies like Automatic, where the employees get together one week a quarter for the entire week in a different location of their choice. Uh, is one way. I also basically say, you know, you remember things and you learn things into two moments. So think about work as basically going every day or pissing from the top of a roof and nobody knows what the hell is going if you're walking downstairs, whether it's piss or what. But if you take a shit from a roof, people downstairs know what exactly happened, okay, when it plonks on one of them. And so what happens is, take what you're trying to do and make them into meaningful things. Don't just get people back into the office program when they come back into the office what's happening. Because the whole idea of, you know, you're bringing people back for personal interaction, for collaboration, for learning, for creativity, for training. Do those things. But don't basically say just come back to the office three days a week. For what? Right? And, and so those are some of the things that i basically suggested which are helpful. And, you know, post, and one of the things that you probably are aware of is after, just to learn new things, you know, post-COVID, I saw a free thought letter. It's a, 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 every Sunday I write this call, and it's called The Future Does Not Fit in the Containers of the Past. And it's free, and it's at rishad.substack.com. And I write, in fact, I wrote about return to the office a week ago, which has been read by 100,000 people, right? Because I said, here's what we're really trying to do. We're trying to combine yesterday and today, or tomorrow, in ways that benefit. And I'm all for in-person interaction. I'm also in person for all that, benefits the technology is bringing us. But how do you marry the human? And it always comes down to this entire thing, which is I can have you in person and behave like almost everything I can basically do in person. I can do over the, you know, over this, but in, in over over the screen. But if also once in a while we go have a beer together, it makes everything better. Right? So the whole idea basically is, it's not getting together in person to get together in person, it's getting together in person in order to build relationships and make the times when you're not together in person, work even better. So that's the way I've kept it.
1: Rishad.substack.com is where you'll find Rishad's newsletter. Also, the book is a magnificent read. Rishad, uh, all that remains for me to say is thank you for leaving us with clarity. And Leaving with energy as well, leaving us pumped up for the day. Author of Restoring the Soul of Business Staying Human in the Age of Data, Rishad Tabakawala, thank you for joining us.
0: Thank you very much for having me on your show and for being such a supporter.
1: And I want to thank our sponsor, Zai, boldly transforming the future of financial services with a suite of embedded finance products and services, empowering businesses to manage multiple payment workflows and move funds with ease. Check out Zai at HelloZai.com. and I'll see you next week.